0: One-week season. NFL Edge. Audio. Browns at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, October 23rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Both teams are looking to bounce back from disappointing performances in Week 6. This is a key AFC North matchup for a division that is still wide open, with all four teams currently within one game of each other. Cleveland's defense is clearly the worst unit in this game, which should play a big factor in determining the outcome and game flow. A tough recent stretch for the Ravens offense should be cured in this soft matchup at home. How Cleveland will try to win. The Browns blew some great chances early in this season to win games, and unfortunately for them, the NFL is an unforgiving league that will not feel sorry for you. They very easily could have been 5-0 through 5 weeks rather than 2-3, but they blew games and now face a very difficult stretch of 5 games against the Ravens, Bengals, Dolphins, Bills, and Bucks before Deshaun Watson returns from suspension. Last week's demolition at the hands of the Patriots had to be disheartening for Browns fans and those within the organization with the blown chances in the past and the now difficult task on the road ahead. The Browns offense has been pretty much what we've expected, boasting the fifth most run-heavy play calling in the NFL. Their tempo has been right around the league average, and their passing offense has actually performed pretty well over the course of the season from an efficiency standpoint, with a lack of volume being the biggest issue. The Browns will undoubtedly lean heavily on their running game and the one-two punch of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt to try and control the game and move the ball. The issue they will have with that approach is that the Ravens will almost certainly be selling out to stop the run and daring the Browns to pass. Also, the Browns are likely to be without all-pro guard Wyatt Teller for this game, a significant blow to their offensive line and running game. Not only is Teller very good at what he does, but his ability to do a variety of things and get to the second level in their blocking scheme opens up a lot of chunk plays we often see from the Browns on the ground. The Browns may need to take some early shots downfield to try to open things up against the Ravens, especially with their own issues on the line, possibly sapping them of some of their usual efficiency. In general, however, the Browns' approach in this game is always going to come back to their running game and concepts off of that, play action, counters, and screens which allowed Jacoby Brissett to make plays without actually having to make plays. How Baltimore will try to win. The Ravens have had a bit of a rough stretch recently, blowing two games late against the Bills and Giants with a narrow Sunday night win over Cincinnati sandwiched in between. During that three-game stretch, the Ravens' offense has failed to score more than 20 points after averaging 33 points per game over the first three weeks of the season. So what gives? Which team do we think they are, and what has been so different the last three weeks? A closer look at the matchups they've had during their recent offensive downturn shows us that the Bills and Bengals are two of the top eight defenses in the league. Also, last week's loss to the Giants, whose defense does not rank well, was against former Ravens defensive coordinator Wink Martindale, who certainly had a game-planning advantage of insider information from past seasons that most defensive coordinators will not be so lucky to have. Next up for the Ravens is a Browns defense that ranks 31st in the NFL in DVOA and 30th in the league in yards per play allowed. The Browns defense has given up 20 plus points to every team they face this year except the Steelers who rank dead last in offensive DVOA. The Browns defense has struggled immensely against both the run and the pass with opponents basically getting to choose their preferred method of attack against them and being able to confidently assume a high level of success. From the Ravens' perspective, they have maintained a top-10 pass rate over expectation this season, which we saw them shift towards last year, and they are also playing with a respectable, situation-neutral pace of play. A big part of the reason the Ravens have remained tilted towards the pass has been injury issues and inconsistency in their backfield, something that is likely to continue this week after featureback J.K. Dobbins felt tightness in his surgically repaired knee in the first quarter of last week's loss to the Giants. Kenyon Drake filled in and had a very nice game when Dobbins was out, but we can confidently expect the Ravens' game plan for Week 7 to lean heavily on both the arm and legs of Lamar Jackson. Likeliest Game Flow Some people may look at last year's games between these teams, game totals of 46 and 26 points, and worry about a poor game environment, but last year's Browns defense was ranked 11th by Football Outsiders DVOA, while this year's team is ranked 31st. That factor, and the way the Ravens will attack this game with heavy reliance on Lamar Jackson, gives this game a higher floor than most will realize. If the Browns are able to take an early lead, the Ravens should be able to move the ball relatively easily to catch up and or take the lead back. Meanwhile, if the Ravens take an early lead, there is the potential for a very similar game to what we saw last week when the Browns fell behind to the Patriots. In that game, the Browns simultaneously couldn't stop the Patriots and they couldn't get their offense going when playing from behind. The Ravens should control the ball more than the Browns early in this game. As the Browns are likely to have either short drives ending in punts, or if their drives are successful, it will likely be through some chunk plays through the air, punishing the Ravens for selling out to stop the run. Both scenarios which lend themselves to short Browns possessions and putting the ball in Lamar Jackson's hands more often than not. Bucks at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, October 23rd, 1pm Eastern, over under 40. Game Overview by Pappy the Bucs are all in good spots against an overmatched opponent that has given up. Mike Evans has squeaky wheel appeal after catching all four of his targets last week in a loss. Kate Otten has been an every-down player without Cameron Brate. DJ Moore is mispriced for his role and talent, but it's difficult to overcome horrific QB play. If you're brave, the Panthers' D is free. How Tampa Bay will try to win. The 3-3 three three Bucks limp into Week 7, coming off a bad loss as heavy favorites against the rebuilding Steelers. The Bucks have dropped three of their last four games, and Tom Brady must be thinking, "I gave up my ties and Yahtzee for this." Fortunately for Brady, the divisions he has played in his entire career are as bad as his marriage, and the Bucks still sit atop the NFC South at an astounding minus 600 favorite to win the division, despite being technically tied. The Bucks do hold the tiebreaker with the Falcons at three and three. Being three and three in the NFC South is like getting divorced when you're the world's most desirable man. You're still winning. What looks more worrisome for Brady's Bucks is the dysfunction surrounding this team. Todd Bowles said that players have to stop living in the past. Brady was caught on camera screaming at his O-line like they were Giselle asking him to watch the kids, and a frustrated Mike Evans basically said, throw me the damn ball, Dad, after the game. This is all set against the backdrop of an aging, and possibly finally declining, quarterback who prioritized going to a wedding over practice. The locker room environment impacting the game is typically filed under things Rex Ryan believes, but this Bucks team is more distracted than Robert Kraft after hiring a new secretary. Despite the drama, nothing has changed except his marital status since Tom Brady arrived in Tampa. The Bucks want to attack with a pass-heavy offense that is designed to let Brady win them games. Brady has thrown 42, 52, 52, and 40 times in the past four weeks, and it's likely we see another 40-pass attempt game in an angry Brady gets right spot against a weak opponent. The Bucs play fast, first in overall pace, and barely slow down in any situation, only falling outside of the top 5 in pace when playing with a touchdown lead, 11th in pace when ahead. The Bucs are what they've been since Brady arrived, an aggressive throwing team that is going to play fast and try to put up points. The Panthers have been bad against the run, 19th in DVOA, and smoked through the air. 25th in DVOA. The Panthers' defensive backs have been poor outside of JC Horn, 11th ranked corner per PFF, and Horn missed last week with a rib injury. The Bucks should be able to attack this secondary even if Horn plays, but if he sits, this unit is one of the weakest in the NFL. There is nothing in this matchup that will tilt the Bucks away from their preferred approach, and the backdrop of this game suggests that the Bucks will let Brady air it out to try and put the focus on his play rather than his personal life how Carolina will try to win. It's difficult to write a section about how a team will try to win when that team has given up trying to win. The most accurate answer might be they won't. The 1 in 5 Panthers come into week 7 sporting the worst record in the league, with the worst point differential in the NFC, minus 43, having fired their coach and actively trying to trade away anyone who is worth anything. The fire sale started with Robbie Anderson being moved for a 6th and 7th round pick after getting into a sideline spat with the coaching staff and being sent to the locker room for being a bad boy. Trade rumors are swirling around Christian McCaffrey, with the holdup in a deal reportedly being that the Panthers want too much for an oft-injured player at a position that has been devalued in the NFL. The Panthers are best served by losing this game for a high draft pick, and they appear willing to tank during a total rebuild. Steve Wilkes has taken over as the interim head coach for the Panthers. Wilkes comes from the defensive side of the ball, with one year as a head coach, 2018 Cardinals that went 3 and 13, and the rest of his time spent primarily as a DB coach. It's fair to assume Wilkes will worry about the defense and let offensive coordinator Ben McAdoo handle the offense. McAdoo has always tried to play with tempo, and this year's Panthers play quick, eighth in total pace. Playing fast in all situations and only slowing way down, 27th in pace, when they have had a lead. That stat is somewhat small sample size noise because the Panthers are never winning. Further complicating things is the fact that Steve Wilkes has been non committal early in the week about going back to Baker Mayfield. Who will be the magic man throwing the ball for the Panthers this week? No one knows, but when your choice is three bad options, you're probably going to pick a bad option. The Buccaneers have been strong against the run eighth in DVOA, and elite against the pass, fourth in DVOA. The Bucs might be struggling on offense, but throwing out the 41 points Patrick Mahomes dropped on them, the Bucks defense has allowed an average of 12.4 points per game. The only path of least resistance the Bucks have presented so far is playing Mahomes, and the Panthers aren't sure which bad QB they're going to start this week. The only consistent part of the Panthers' offense has been CMC, who is being used as a centerpiece regardless of who is under center. Expect the Panthers to try and get CMC the ball, while partially hoping the dramatic Bucks beat themselves, and partially hoping the Bucks win, improving their draft standing. Likeliest game flow: This game opened with the second lowest total on the slate, 41 and a half. has quickly been bet down to 40 and a half to start the week. The Bucks are two-score, 11-point favorites, and are expected to do essentially all of the scoring. The Panthers are a mess and are rocking one of the lowest team totals. 14.75 that you'll see all year. The most likely game flow is Angry Tom jumps all over the willing to lose Panthers, and the Bucks open up a big early lead. Normally that would lead to the team that's ahead taking their foot off the gas, but Angry Tom is known for trying to paste weaker teams, and the backdrop of this game hints that the Bucks aren't going to be in the mood for mercy. Falcons at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, October 23rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under Forty-seven, game overview by Hilo. Atlanta has a very clear yet maddening identity. Run the football from heavy sets and see what happens. It seems borderline silly to say, but this contest looks like a battle of the defensive coordinators between Lou Anarumo and Dean Pease. Wide range of potential outcomes as far as game environment and flow, with volume unlikely to fully condense on either side. About as unexciting a game as can be expected for a game with a total of 47.5 points. Basically, can Jamar Chase break the game open? If not, mute it upside. How Atlanta will try to win. One look at the Falcons team metrics paints an immediate picture of how they are trying to win games this season. Their slow pace of play, 29th ranked first half pace of play, and 25th ranked situation neutral pace of play, Heavy rush rates, second most rush plays per game at 33.7, and second lowest pass rate over expectation, and wildly high heavy personnel rates, 21 and 12 personnel, tell us most of what we need to know. Arthur Smith wants to run the damn ball. For better or for worse, it seems to be working out from a real-world football perspective to the maddening dissatisfaction of fantasy managers. Atlanta currently finds themselves tied atop the NFC South with the Buccaneers, with a record of 3-3 and a positive 10-point scoring differential through six weeks. With that, however, electric tight end Kyle Pitts hasn't played over a 67% snap rate since week two, and standout rookie wide receiver Drake London hasn't played over a 67% snap rate since week four, and that's with starting running back Cordarrelle Patterson on the IR and out of the lineup over the past two weeks. Their 3-4 Jack-based defense doesn't stand out on paper other than being a low blitz rate, Dean Pease-led unit that plays man coverage at an above-average rate. Basically, the identity of this team is to do the little things right on the football field and not beat themselves. The absence of Corderell Patterson has left this backfield in a clear 1A, 2A, 2B timeshare with heavy fullback utilization, led by rookie running back Tyler Algier and his 4.4 yards per carry, two-down grinder profile. Avery Williams, a former walk-on cornerback at Boise State turned NFL running back, and Caleb Huntley, a 5'10", 229-pound between-the-tackles bruiser, mix in behind Algier for a team that is going to continue running the football if it is working. The matchup on the ground yields a well-above-average 4.66 net adjusted line yards metric against a Bengals defense largely holding opposing backfields in check to the tune of a 4.25 yards per running back carry allowed and only 18.6 fantasy points per game allowed to the position. Most notably, Falcons running backs have exactly one game all season with more than 17 running back opportunities, which came for starter quarter Al Patterson way back in week one. Since then, they have spread the ball around enough to remove all fantasy consideration for all members. Finally, the Falcons have fed their backfield only 16 targets all season, which ranks last in the NFL. Things don't get any rosier for the pass game at least not from a fantasy perspective. Rookie wide receiver Drake London carries elite underlying metrics through the first six games of his NFL career, like 37.1% targets per route run and 33.1% team target market share elite, good first first and second in the NFL respectively. But the offense attempts only 22.8 passes per game, which ranks 31st in the league, ahead of only the Bears. Dynamic tight end Kyle Pitts has just 25 targets through five healthy games. Yeah, the weekly floor does not exist here. Olamide Zacchaeus is technically the starting wide receiver opposite London, but he has seen just 18 total targets through six games. Cotterell Hodge, Brian Edwards, and Damier Bird fight for the scraps behind London and Zacchaeus, with blocking tight end Parker Hesse seeing the field more than Kyle Pitts. Woof. How Cincinnati will try to win. The Bengals play at a middling pace, almost exclusively from an 11 personnel. A total of two offensive snaps over the previous two weeks have come from either 12 or 21 personnel, making them one of the easier teams to project from a fantasy perspective on a weekly basis. Their offense has been at or above league average in plays in all but one game this season and has surged to the fifth highest pass rate over expectation, PROE, value in the league, averaging the sixth most plays per game, 67.2, and the tenth most pass attempts per game, 38.2. Defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo utilizes a 4-2-5 base nickel scheme with above-average man coverage rates and has held opponents to the 6th lowest drive success rate and 10th fewest points per game this season. The Cincinnati backfield is easy to project on a weekly basis, with Joe Mixon firmly established as the lead back and Samaje Pirine operating as the change of pace back. Both are highly capable in any situation, meaning Pirine can be thought of as a true breather back as opposed to anything situational. Mixon leads the NFL in red zone opportunities, has run the third most routes at the position, and has underperformed his expected fantasy points per game by over 25% to start the season. His fantasy points per opportunity rank 60th in the league, highlighting his lack of efficiency through six games. That said, all indicators point to him bucking the trend at some point, which is likely to lead to an eruption game without warning. The pure rushing matchup yields a borderline elite 4.63 net adjusted line yards metric against a Falcons defense allowing 4.49 yards per running back carry and 22.4 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. Second year standout Jamar Chase has been in a route on every pass play for the Bengals this season, but has earned targets at a non-elite 25.9% targets per route run rate. T. Higgins checks in behind Chase at 24.2% targets per route run, while slot receiver Tyler Boyd brings up the rear at just 13.1%. Quarterback Joe Burrow has largely struggled in the deep passing game, ranking 29th of qualified passers in yards per attempt on passes greater than 20 yards downfield, keeping the overall offense confined to primarily intermediate work. All of Chase, Higgins, and Boyd hold A-dots between 9.1 and 10. The Bengals running backs have accounted for 49 total targets through 6 games, which is 7th most in the league, while the tight ends have accounted for 37 total targets. The three primary wide receivers have accounted for 139 total targets, good for a 62% positional target rate and right at league average. Basically, the elevated PROE value is the primary contributor to volume across the board. We finally got a glimpse of Jamar Chase's game-breaking upside last week, reminding us all of what he can do with the ball in his hands. Likeliest game flow Both of these teams draw their primary identity from their defense, and more specifically, their defensive coordinators, but have wildly different outlooks on offense to pair with it. Whereas the Falcons lean extremely run-heavy behind heavy personnel sets in an attempt to slow games down, the Bengals look to be aggressive through the air from 11 personnel to keep teams on their heels defensively. That said, the starting point from a game environment perspective is very much on the defensive side of the ball for both teams, which will likely serve to keep the game muted, at least to start. Where it eventually moves from there depends largely on which team can be successful in the red zone, leaving the eventual game flow with a wide range of potential outcomes.
1: Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level.
0: Lions at Cowboys. Kickoff Sunday, October 23rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 49. Game Overview by Hilo. Lots of moving pieces on the Detroit injury report, with Amon Ross St. Brown getting in his first full practice since injuring his ankle in Week 3, DJ Shark and Josh Reynolds listed as DNP on Wednesday, and DeAndre Swift returning as a limited participant for the first time since suffering an ankle injury in Week 3. Dallas should get quarterback Dak Prescott back from injury this week. The Lions' overall 58.26% pass rate and below average pass rate over expectation in three of five games reminds us of how they would like to win they have just largely been unable to do so this season due to the routine negative game scripts they have found themselves in. Dallas should be afforded the opportunity to get a run game going that has largely struggled this season, particularly considering how good Ezekiel Elliott looked in week 6 with likely positive game script and the elite matchup. How Detroit will try to win. It is clear that the Lions would like to return to smash mouth football behind a top 5 offensive line but a defense playing man coverage at the highest rate in the league has not afforded them much opportunity to continue that game plan deep into games. As such, it's likely we see them start the game this week attempting to control things on the ground, but a Dallas defense holding opponents to 4.35 yards per carry and the fourth lowest drive success rate against is likely to turn the Lions to the air sooner rather than later. When that happens, look out, friends. The Cowboys have a relentless pass rush, and Jared Goff is back to being hashtag not good when under pressure, which is likely to lead to sacks and potential for turnovers, placing the Lions deeper into negative game script. Overall, expect the Lions to be forced into a linear increase in aerial aggression as the game progresses. The Lions are expecting DeAndre Swift back from an extended absence due to ankle and shoulder injuries, Coming off thereby, there is no reason to expect a decrease to his workload, assuming he returns to a full practice at some point this week. Swift has played only two fully healthy games this season, seeing 18 and 10 running back opportunities in those contests. Jamal Williams saw 13 running back opportunities in those same two games and will be involved regardless, with the ultimate split in opportunities likely coming down to Swift's level of health. The pure rushing matchup yields a robust 4.685 net adjusted line yards metric, behind the league's third-ranked run-blocking offensive line. Craig Reynolds is on hand to handle any change of pace work dependent on the health of DeAndre Swift. It's likelier than not that the Lions are forced into increased aerial aggression as the game progresses. Amon Ross St. Brown returned to a full practice on Wednesday, signaling a return to full health coming out of the bye. St. Brown averaged 11 targets per game over the first three weeks of the season before missing Week 4 and playing on an injured ankle in Week 5. Josh Reynolds and DJ Chark failed to practice on Wednesday, which is not good news coming out of the bye. Khalif Raymond and Tom Kennedy would be next men up, likely in that order, should either miss again this week. St. Brown ranks second in the league in targets per route run rate at 34.8% and should lead this team in receiving for the rest of the season. Tight end TJ Hawkinson ranks in the top 12 at the position in routes run, route participation rate, targets per route run, and team target market share but he fails to crack the top 7 at the position in any of those metrics and holds a modest 7.4 ADOT, good for 13th. The pass offense is legitimately amon ra and then everyone else, particularly if Chark and or Reynolds can't go. The primary detractor of the pass offense here is the elite pressure rate forced by the Dallas defensive line and second level, which is likely to limit the average intended air yards from quarterback Jared Goff. As such, volume should be the primary indicator of fantasy goodness here how Dallas will try to win. The Cowboys have finished below league average in pass rate over expectation in every single game this season, with an overall pass rate of only 54.19% on the year. They are, however, mixing that with an elevated pace of play, fifth in situation neutral pace of play, and ninth in overall pace of play, That should, theoretically, combine with a top-five defensive unit to wear down an opposing defense over time due to elevated pace and increased time of possession, but the underperforming Dak Prescott and backup quarterback through six games have kept their offensive drive success rate at a paltry 28th rank. Basically, everything hasn't come together at once for the Cowboys just yet, which has meant they have averaged only 59.7 offensive plays run from scrimmage over the first six weeks. The intent is clearly evident, but the execution has yet to fully be there. That should change this week against an opponent yielding 5.46 yards per running back carry. Lead rusher Ezekiel Elliott has played between 58 and 67% of the offensive snaps in every game this year, leading to an average of 15.7 carries and 1.3 targets per game. That's nothing to get overly excited about until you realize he averages 17.75 carries in Dallas wins versus just 11.5 in Dallas losses this year. With the Cowboys installed as heavy 7-point favorites at home, we should see a bankable 18-22 carries for Zeke in an elite matchup. Tony Pollard will continue as the change of pace and obvious passing down back, likely landing in the 35-45% snap rate range. The matchup yields an elite 4.74 net-adjusted line yards metric behind a finally healthy Dallas offensive line. Of note, Zeke has only 8 targets through 6 games, and Pollard has only 16 targets through 6 games for an offense targeting the running back position at one of the lowest rates in the league. CD Lamb has established himself as a true alpha in the league, commanding an elite 33.1% targets per route run rate and 33.3% team target market share. Michael Gallup has returned to health enough to notch 22.4% and 19.0% marks while playing behind Noah Brown, who holds 20.1% and 17.8% marks, respectively. Tight end Dalton Schultz practiced in full Wednesday after being a surprise inactive against the Eagles in Week 6. He logged a full practice last Friday before eventually being ruled out for the game, so the nagging knee injury is clearly not fully healed at this point. The rookie duo of Jake Ferguson and Peyton Hendershot filled in for Schultz in both of his missed contests this year and are on hand should Schultz either miss or be limited. Schultz last played a feature role in Week 4, failing to catch any of his three targets. To say it has been a disappointing season thus far for the breakout tight end is an understatement. His 81% route participation rate remains in tight end 1 territory, but his 18.1% targets per route run rate ranks 29th at the position. Either way, there has been nothing prohibitive from a Lions secondary playing the highest rate of man coverage in the league. Finally, C.D. Lamb has averaged 10 targets per game with no fewer than 8 targets in a game this year. Likeliest Game Flow The suffocating defense of the Dallas Cowboys is likely to assert control on this game from the jump, as their unreal 31.2% pressure rate has been achieved despite a moderate 22.3% blitz rate. Lions quarterback Jared Goff has reverted back to doing Jared Goff things when pressured with the worst quarterback rating over the previous three games when under pressure after starting the year with the second best marks in that split over the first two games. Since we know how the Cowboys would like to approach their offensive game plan, and since that lines up well with the deficiencies of the Lions defense, we should see a likeliest scenario where the Cowboys are allowed to control the tempo, flow, and environment. And, since we also know that the Lions are plenty fine dialing up the aerial aggression when forced, we have a very clear likeliest game flow of the Cowboys being able to run the football, establishing a lead, and then the Lions forced to turn to the air sooner rather than later. It just so happens that the Lions have a couple of PPR monsters that are capable of inflicting solid damage when given volume. Giants at Jaguars. Kickoff Sunday, October 23rd, 1pm Eastern, over under 43. Game Overview by Hilo. These two teams rank 7th, 18.8, and 9th, 19.0, in points allowed per game. That said, the Jaguars have had the second easiest strength of schedule, SOS, and the highest DVOA variance, a measure of performance versus SOS, while the Giants have had the ninth easiest SOS and third worst defensive DVOA. Something doesn't add up for each of these teams. Furthering that discussion, the Giants are projected at 2.7 wins, but currently stand at 5-1, while the Jaguars are projected at 3.1 wins, but currently stand at 2-4. Both teams rank in the top 13 in average time of possession this season, and both teams rank in the top 8 in rush attempts per game. Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Toney continue to miss practice to start the week. Tony hasn't played since week 2, while Galladay hasn't played since week 4. Wandale Robinson played only 23% of the team's offensive snaps in his first game action since playing only nine snaps in week one. How New York will try to win. It's quite amazing what a competent coaching staff can do for a team in such a short period of time. That statement cannot be more true or pertinent as it is when talking about the Giants this season, completely retooled their coaching staff this offseason. Head coach Brian Dayball, offensive coordinator Mike Kafka, and defensive coordinator Wink Martindale are consistently placing this team in position to win games, resulting in a shocking 5 1 record through the season's first six weeks. As noted in the overview section above, predictive statistics and metrics paint a gloomier picture, with New York projected for only 2.7 wins, but the overperforming nature of this team could not be possible without the coaching staff they currently have. The majority of the game plan is simple. Blitz teams aggressively, highest blitz rate in the league at 36%, to disrupt drives, ranked 13th in drive success rate allowed and 7th in points allowed, and generate turnovers, eight turnovers in six games, on defense and control the ball and clock through their best offensive player, Saquon Barkley. It's so simple, yet it's been so effective. That should remain true ahead of a week seven matchup with the Jaguars, whose quarterback has struggled immensely when either blitzed 5th worst PFF grade of qualified passers when blitzed this season, behind only Justin Fields, Jared Goff, Kirk Cousins, and Russell Wilson. Or when under pressure, 3rd worst PFF grade of qualified passers when under pressure, behind only Zach Wilson and Mac Jones. The Giants have called 32.7 rush plays per game, and Saquon Barkley holds an elite 84.8% running back opportunity share, leading to the most carries through 6 weeks, 119, on pace for 337 this season. He has nine breakaway runs already this season, second, in addition to the most yards created, a measure of running backs' volume plus efficiency. His 60.5% route participation rate ranks third at the running back position. Saquon is back, baby, and Dayball and Kafka are basically designing their offense around what he brings to the table. The pure matchup on the ground yields a well below average 4.18 net adjusted line yards metric against a Jaguars defense allowing only 3.6 yards per carry, third in the league behind San Francisco and Buffalo. The pass game for the Giants is, well, a veritable disaster. With Sterling Shepard lost for the season and Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Toney out last week, David Sills, Richie James, and Wandale Robinson all played 35% of offensive snaps or fewer while Darius Slayton and practice squad wide receiver Marcus Johnson led the team with snap rates of 69 and 62% respectively. Wandale Robinson's 55% slot snap rate and 35.7% targets per route run rate this season hint at the upside once he can return to a full allotment of snaps, but it's anyone's guess as to when that may be. Furthermore, the Giants have attempted only 27 passes per game this season, which ranks 29th in the league ahead of only the Titans, Falcons, and Bears. The Jaguars' 3-4 nickel base zone defense ranks right around league average in completion percentage allowed, yards allowed per pass attempt, yards allowed per completion, red zone touch rate allowed, defensive ADOT forced, and yards allowed per drive. Overall, considered a neutral matchup with no clear path for targets to flow outside of Saquon Barkley and potentially Wandell Robinson, he's highly likely to increase his modest 23% snap rate from a week ago, but how high it gets is a relative unknown. How Jacksonville will try to win I could legitimately copy and paste the top portion of the Giants right up into this section, as each team has approached trying to win games almost identically. Whereas the Giants have been on the better side of variance in the win column, the Jaguars have been on the negative side. Consider this, the Jaguars have trailed by 7 or more points for roughly the same amount of time that the Giants have led by 7 or more points through 6 games, yet the former sit at 5-1 and one, while the latter sit at 2-4. and four. The defensive side of the ball is largely where these two teams deviate, as the Jaguars are about league average in most major defensive metrics and appear more prevent than aggressive, playing a high rate of snaps from 3-4 nickel alignments. Another glaring difference is the backfield tandem utilized by the Jaguars, with James Robinson and Travis Etienne within 18 snaps through six contests. Offensive personnel rates largely change based on the opponent for the Jaguars, who run 11 personnel as their base-look offense from a personnel perspective, but have shown the propensity to go heavy with increased rates of 12 personnel usage when necessary. Marvin Jones missed Week 6 with a hamstring injury, which forced the Jaguars into increased 12 personnel rates, but he returned to a limited practice on Wednesday and appears likely to play this week. As already mentioned, this backfield is close to a 50-50 split between James Robinson and Travis Etienne, with the former slipping in efficiency and snap rate and the latter surging in efficiency and snap rate as the season has gone on. I would expect the trends to somewhat force the Jaguars hand moving forward, with Etienne likely to garner increased snap and opportunity rates in the immediate future. It is worth noting that the Jaguars have been at or above league average in total offensive snaps run from scrimmage in five of six games so far, Which, when paired with their elevated rush rates, should give us a fairly bankable total backfield opportunity count. Again, likely split somewhere near 50 50 to 60 40. The pure rushing matchup is a good one, yielding an above average 4.44 net adjusted line yards metric against the Giants defense, allowing a hefty 5.47 running back yards per carry to opposing backfields. Also worth noting, however, is the poor run blocking performances these two backs have overcome so far this year. As they've combined to average 5.07 yards per carry, despite the line blocking to only 3.86 adjusted line yards. That yards per carry ranks fifth in the NFL, while the adjusted line yards value ranks 30th. The pass offense is an interesting case of head scratching utilization, as the tight snap rates amongst the top four pass catchers are met with a relatively spread offense amongst those four. For example, all of Christian Kirk, Zay Jones, Marvin Jones, and Evan Ingram typically play 80% of the offensive snaps yet all four of those players carry team target market shares between 16.4% for Ingram and 22.6% for Kirk. Even more glaring is the tight distribution of targets per route run rates, 26% for Kirk, 25.2% for Zay Jones, 20.4% for Marvin Jones, and 21.5% for Ingram. Basically, the offense is spread almost evenly amongst the top four pass-catching options, meaning nobody is separating themselves from the pack as far as earning targets goes. Finally, the team has fed only 32 targets to its running backs this season, which ranks right near league average, tied with Minnesota and Cleveland and less than New England for perspective. In summary, both the offense and defense are very much league average, with very little aggression exhibited on either side, making their overall game plan of the don't lose the game and see what happens variety. Likeliest game flow. The Giants somehow rank fifth in average time of possession this season while leading by 7 or more points for only 23 minutes and 9 seconds through 6 games, which seems borderline impossible. The Jaguars are 2-4 while trailing by 7 or more points for only 27 minutes and 48 seconds through 6 games. With that understanding, we can start to see how each team has managed to largely control game environments through their defense and increased rush rates. The elevated blitz rates of the Giants are likely to be an issue for Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars, They are likely to realize that coming in and do what they can to hide those deficiencies through their running back tandem. Those two variables are likely to steer this game towards a run-balanced slugfest with each team focused on riding average to above-average defenses and increased rush rates to keep within striking distance for longer. That said, each side has a path to breaking off chunk gains on the ground through Saquon Barkley and Travis Etienne, but the percentage solution here is a poor game environment for fantasy production on either side. Colts at Titans. Kickoff Sunday, October 23rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 42. Game Overview by Hilo. This will be the second meeting between these two teams in a calendar month. NFL scheduling, figure this out. Jonathan Taylor returned to a limited practice on Wednesday while Naeem Hines was a full go. The Colts have been at or below league average in pass rate over expectation in every game but last week's victory over the Jaguars, and that was played without both Jonathan Taylor and Naeem Hines. The Titans have been at or below league average in pass rate over expectation in every game this year. Winner of this game takes control of the AFC South approaching the midpoint of the season. The Titans have laughably scored only 14 second-half points all season. How Indianapolis will try to win the Colts looked dynamic on paper with an average of 42.2 pass attempts per game, but the context is lost in translation with the team averaging the third most plays per game this season at 69.5. They ran 92 offensive plays in a week one overtime draw, shout out to my OWS fam across the pond, ran 81 offensive plays last week against the Jaguars team that ran for multiple splash plays, and ran 79 offensive plays in an overtime win in week five against the hapless Broncos. Their other three games, they averaged 61.67 plays per game, including 66 against these same Titans. Their 65.71% pass play rate tells more of routinely negative game script than it does of the intention of this offense. As pointed out above, they have been at or below league average and pass rate over expectation in every game but last week's win, when they played without both Jonathan Taylor and Naeem Hines. For further context... The last time these two teams played, the Colts fell into a 24-3 hole midway through the second quarter and still finished with only 66 offensive plays run from scrimmage, including 6 punts, including 37 pass attempts due to the extremely negative game script. As in, nothing has truly changed with how this team wants to try and win games, rather it's much more likely the changing dynamics have been largely due to injuries in the backfield paired with two overtime games and largely negative game environments. It appears likely the team will get back both of its top running backs, with Jonathan Taylor getting in a limited session on Wednesday after reportedly being close to playing in week 6, and Naeem Hines clearing the concussion protocol. There is a possibility we see Taylor's workload scaled back a bit in his first game back from multiple missed games due to an ankle injury, but the norm for this team has been to have Taylor operating at a 75% plus snap and workload share role, with Naeem Hines reserved for change of pace and obvious passing down duties. The Colts also utilized the tandem on the field together, a non negligible twelve point two five percent of the snaps through week four before Taylor got hurt. Taylor's season average places him at twenty carries and four targets per game, which should be considered the starting point from which to deviate if we get any news on a potential snap count due to his injury. Anything left over should be left to Hines, with Dion Jackson likely relegated to a pure reserve role after playing only two offensive snaps through the first four games. The matchup on the ground yields a putrid 3.985 net adjusted line yards metric against the Titans defense yielding 4.67 yards per carry to opposing backfields this season. I've talked a lot about Michael Pittman's non-elite 24.1% targets per route run rate and non-elite 24.4% team target market share this year with his two blow-up games coming in games the Colts ran 92 and 81 offensive plays from scrimmage. Pittman has failed to surpass 15.2 fantasy points in his three other fully healthy games this season and is now the fourth highest priced wide receiver on the slate. He and Paris Campbell found themselves playing nearly every offensive snap each of the last two weeks with Taylor and Hines out, with Campbell maxing out at an 82% snap rate over the first four weeks. It is likelier than not we see the offense shift back towards a heavy-based offense this week with the two back healthy which should slightly dent Paris' expected snap rate in order to fit more 12 personnel alignments. Expect Alec Pierce to play as many snaps as the 12 personnel rates will allow, likely at the direct detriment of Michael Strachan, with Ashton Doolin on IR. The Titans can really be beaten in every which way, having allowed 8 point yards per completion this season. It's more a matter of how the Colts choose to attack here. How Tennessee will try to win. The Titans come off their bye at a 3-2 record, currently sitting atop the weak AFC South. It should come as no surprise, but the Titans have been at or below league average and pass rate over expectation in every game this year, which makes sense considering the makeup of their team. They currently hold just four active wide receivers on their roster with rookie Traylon Burks on IR. In their first game without Burks in Week 5, Robert Woods and Nick Westbrook-Akine functioned as near-every-down wide receivers, with Cody Hollister and rookie Kyle Phillips fighting for the scraps in a 12-personnel base offense. One of the slowest paces of play in the league, coupled with the worst net yards per drive value in the league, has led to the Titans averaging only 56.4 offensive snaps per game, which ranks 30th in the league. Basically, it's somewhat of a miracle that Tennessee currently stands at 3-2 considering their offense averages the second fewest yards per drive and their defense seeds the fourth most yards per drive. Furthermore, the Titans have scored only 14 points in the second half of five total games. Woof. Teams simply stack the box against them knowing full well that the pass game is unlikely to beat them. The one-dimensionality of the Titans' offense has meant that they have seen stacked boxes at one of the highest rates in the league, with Derrick Henry averaging just 3.4 yards per carry against heavy boxes this season. That's unlikely to change until the Titans can show they can beat teams through the air, which remains to be seen even with the team coming off their bye, considering the relative dearth of dynamic pass-catching options on the roster. As such, expect more of the same here, with lead runner Derrick Henry charged with banging into a brick wall repeatedly with the hope that his massive stature can wear the opposition down over time. Hint, it isn't working, as evidenced by the team scoring just 14 second half points all season. Expect Dontrell Hilliard to continue to serve as the team's primary change of pace and long down in distance to go back. The pure rushing matchup yields a gross 4.125 net adjusted line yards metric against a Colts defense suffocating opposing backfields to just 4.09 yards per running back carry. When your top pass catchers are Robert Woods coming off a lost season and Nick Westbrook Akine, you can expect to carry poor passing efficiency, and that is exactly what the Titans have this season. Ryan Tannehill has attempted just 25.2 passes per game and only 11 total deep balls, 2.2 per game, as his receivers generate the fourth lowest average separation at target. The loss of rookie Traylon Burks has left the team with no true dynamic option through the air, further hamstringing the effectiveness of the pass game. The only positive here is that the team is coming off their bye week, meaning they've had two full weeks to prepare for the visiting Colts, but it remains to be seen if they will have dialed up any unique looks considering the lack of dynamism amongst their primary pass catchers. Expect Woods and Westbrook-Akine to continue operating as near-every-down-wide receivers, with Cody Hollister and Kyle Phillips mixing in behind them. Phillips' game brings the highest upside to the table, but he quickly lost the trust of his coaching staff following a lost fumble on a punt in Week 2. Expect Jeff Swaim, Austin Hooper, and Chagosia Mankankwu to continue rotating through the tight end position, with Hooper as the primary pass-catching option. Likeliest Game Flow. What's more exciting? watching paint dry, watching grass grow, or watching the Titans repeatedly run Derrick Henry into a brick wall. I'd side with paint, personally. If not for the excitement surrounding the Jets and Broncos, Giants at Jaguars, Buccaneers at Panthers, and Packers at Commanders, that was sarcasm, this game would be immediately scoffed at. It's rare to have an NFL game with a total under 43 points in today's game, and we have five on the slate this week. Yippee! Both teams average 19.2 points per game or fewer, with the Titans actually leading the charge between the two. Hey, at least the Titans average 22 points per game at home this year. The Colts average 10.7 points per game on the road. Look, both teams know the winner of this game controls the AFC South, so we can expect a hard fought, real world NFL game. It's just likely to be a battle of attrition as opposed to an offensive masterpiece. Both teams still have dynamic backfields with breakaway talent. So, there are paths to this game environment opening up. That said, each team is likely to go into a relative shell if playing with any lead, which serves to further limit the upside of the game environment overall. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to oneweekseason.com and become a subscriber to gain
1: access to in depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Packers at the Commanders kick off Sunday, October 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Hilo One of the five games on the slate with a game total of 43 points or less. Only the Buccaneers has a larger spread of those games. Carson Wentz will miss this contest after having surgery on his finger, leaving Taylor Heineke to start. Tight ends Logan Thomas and John Bates, and wide receiver De'Ami Brown missed practice on Wednesday for the commanders. Rookie wide receiver Jahan Dotson should return after logging a limited session Wednesday. Each team should largely be able to run their preferred offensive game plan here, as what they are likely to do lines up well with the shortcomings of the opposing defense. This is highly likely to be a gross game environment with not a ton to be overly excited about. How Green Bay will try to win. The Packers continue to play at a slow pace, 28th in overall pace of play and situation-neutral pace of play, with moderate pass rates, 17th ranked overall pass rate at 59.90%, and league average or below pass rate over expectation in four of six games, which they pair with a back-to-front, outside-in pass defense, have allowed the highest completion rate in the league at 70.86%, but the sixth lowest yards per completion at 9.2. They run below average man coverage from their 3-4 base with an emphasis on swarming the point of reception after the catch. Poor marks against the run for the fourth consecutive year have been primarily due to the second level. Their usual offensive efficiency has taken a stark hit without Devontae Adams, going from the league's third most efficient offense last year to the 21st ranked unit through six weeks of 2022. The running back tandem of Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon has been everything from a strict timeshare to a 1A-1B situation to a lead back change of pace back situation through six weeks, with Aaron Jones seeing between 56 and 73% of the offensive snaps throughout. Strangely enough, Jones's opportunity share and fantasy output have been highly influenced by game script over the previous three seasons, with the second highest delta in fantasy output in wins versus losses over that time, second only to Derrick Henry's splits in the same comparison. The Packers are currently instilled as five-point favorites on the road. If it were played at home, it would be closer to eight points, which could signal an increased workload on deck for Jones. The pure rushing matchup yields an above average 4.455 net adjusted line yards metric against a Washington defense seeding 25.4 DK points per game to opposing backfields, including six total touchdowns to the position. Slot-wide receiver Randall Cobb is set to miss multiple weeks with an ankle injury sustained in Week 6, while Christian Watson did not practice on Wednesday after missing last week's contest with a hamstring injury, which typically is not a good sign for a player's status the following week. Sammy Watkins returned to practice this week after missing the team's previous four games. He should combine with Amari Rogers to fill the void in offensive snaps behind lead-wide receivers Allen Lazard and Romeo Dobbs. Although not responsible for the same level of volume, Lazard has done well stepping into Devontae Adams' shoes in this offense, scoring a touchdown or going over 100 yards receiving in all five healthy games this season. His low 20.9% targets per route run and 19.5% team target market share are nothing to get overly excited about, but the red zone role is robust, 25% red zone target rate. Romeo Dobbs holds a 21.8 targets per route run rate and 18.2% team target market share, while Cobb's 23.4 targets per route run rate will be missed over the middle of the field. Tied-in Robert Tanyan set a season-high snap rate in Week 6 at 63%, typically splitting time at tight end with elite blocker Mercedes Lewis. There is room to grow should the Packers increase their 12 personnel usage in the absence of Randall Cobb and Christian Watson. How Washington Will Try to Win For how poor Ron Riviera is at in-game management, he's actually an above-average game planner. With a backup quarterback and matchup that tilts toward the ground and short to intermediate passing on deck, with injuries to their top two tight ends, I would expect an offense built around 11 personnel, the ground game, and Curtis Samuel. Taylor Heineke is a career backup, with the heaviest game action of his career coming last season as the de facto starter. During the 2021 season, he threw the second-most danger throws and second-most interceptable passes, held the 26th ranked adjusted yards per pass attempt, and had the second-lowest passer rating against zone coverages of qualified passers, of which the Packers utilized at an above-average rate. That brings us back to the initial assertion in this section. I expect the commanders to bias their game plan towards the ground game and the short passing game, primarily through Brian Robinson and Curtis Samuel. Brian Robinson made a remarkable recovery from multiple gunshot wounds to his leg to assert control over this backfield in Week 6. His 47% snap rate was the highest for the primary rusher since Week 2 when Antonio Gibson held a 54% mark. That said, this very well should continue to be a three-way timeshare amongst Robinson, Antonio Gibson, and pass game specialist J.D. McKissick the latter of whom has seen snap rates between 40% and 53% in negative game scripts this season. The pure rushing matchup yields a borderline elite 4.665 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Packers defense seeding 5.29 yards per running back carry and 26.4 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. Finally, Brian Robinson saw 17 carries in the Commander's Battle of the Trenches against Chicago, which should be viewed as a starting point moving forward. That said, don't expect much usage through the passing game, leaving him entrenched as a yardage and touchdown back, albeit in a plus matchup. The Commanders were already an 11 personnel base offense. But the absences of both of their top two tight ends and the likely return of rookie wide receiver Jahan Dodson is likely to leave them playing almost exclusively from 11 personnel this week. Washington has exactly five offensive snaps from 21 personnel the entire season. That should keep Terry McLaurin and Jahan Dodson on the field for the majority of offensive snaps, with Curtis Samuel likely surpassing a 90% snap rate out of the slot. The areas of the field that Samuel works line up well with both the matchup and the new starting quarterback's skill set, making it likely Samuel will see a slight uptick in receiving usage and volume this week. His low 4.4 ADOT means a lot has to go right in order for him to hit, but the floor should be slightly elevated this week. The Packers have gotten a lot of press for how much off-coverage they have played this season, which has left the middle of the field open for crossing routes and slants. The problem for the commanders is neither McLaurin nor Dodson have been running those routes, which have primarily been reserved for Samuel. Rookie tight end Cole Turner played a massive 93% of the offensive snaps a week ago, which amounted to only two catches on two targets for 23 yards. He is priced at the bare minimum once again, and could theoretically increase his modest 14.7% targets per route run value this year based on the macro matchup. Likeliest Game Flow while the commanders should largely be able to run their preferred game plan here. That game plan involves elevated rush rates and short area passing, which should mean they face numerous third and moderate distance-to-go situations. As in, Taylor Heineke is likely going to be charged with converting third downs, which doesn't do much to instill confidence in the commanders this week. On the other side, the Packers should find success in the same manner, tasked with methodically marching the field through the ground game and short area passing game. It's just likelier to be successful than on the other side. That should lead to a relatively slow pace and grinded-out game environment, which the Packers should eventually assert control over. The likeliest alternate game flow involves the Packers continuing to struggle offensively, which, again, doesn't leave a ton of room for fantasy upside. As such, any interest in this game should be of the one-off variety, as the paths to upside from the game environment are extremely thin. The Jets at the Broncos, kick off Sunday, October 23rd at 4.05pm Eastern, with an over-under of 38. Game Overview, by Mike Johnson Treat this game like Medusa. Do not look directly at it, or you may turn to stone. The Jets have gone on a winning streak by writing their defense and running game while hiding Zach Wilson. The Broncos continue to be their own worst enemy, with opponents just having to wait long enough to let them beat themselves. The only offensive unit in this game that has shown a consistent pulse has been the Jets' running game. How New York will try to win. The Jets started the season 1-2 and two, and appeared destined for another disappointing season before rolling off three straight victories against the Steelers, Dolphins, and Packers since Zach Wilson returned to the lineup. However, the winning streak has not necessarily been the result of anything Wilson is doing, but rather the way the Jets' defense has played and the success the running game has had in hiding him. Another huge part of the recent run of success has been their schedule, as they have beaten the Steelers, who made a QB change mid-game, the Dolphins, who were playing with their third-string QB for all but one play, and the Packers, who have been terrible on offense this season. Luckily for the Jets, another poor offensive unit is on tap for Week 7, which should allow them to continue their recipe for success. The emergence of Brees Hall and the execution of the Mike LaFleur running game, which originates from the San Francisco Shanahan scheme, has been key to the Jets' success. Zach Wilson has thrown a combined 39 passes over the last two weeks, and the Jets would undoubtedly like to see him throw only around 20 passes again this week against a Broncos pass defense that is the best in the league through six weeks and just held Justin Herbert and the Chargers in check on Monday Night Football. The Jets have run the ball around 60% of their plays over the past two weeks, and I would expect a similar approach this week for as long as that is feasible. Given the strength of the Jets' defense and the ineffectiveness of the Broncos' offense, along with mounting injuries for Russell Wilson, the Jets should be able to keep things close enough to stick with that approach deep into the game. How Denver Will Try to Win Head coach Nathaniel Hackett's attempt at running an NFL team has looked eerily similar to how I expect things would look if I were to attempt to direct a Broadway play. Sure, I have a pretty good idea of the basic way things are supposed to work, but I would be completely clueless on dozens of logistical things, and there would be zero rhythm, timing, or consistency in the performance. In the end, I would make some people who are among the most talented in the world at what they do look relatively lost and embarrass us all in the process, while making everyone watching wish they had spent their time doing literally anything else. While Hackett has certainly been in over his head, Russell Wilson is right there next to him in terms of disappointing performance and head-scratching comments and decisions. He has repeatedly missed open throws or thrown to covered receivers when other players were wide open. Wilson, who has been a highly graded passer throughout his career, currently ranks 25th out of 29 qualified passers in PFF grade and 23rd in the NFL in QB rating. Wilson also has a career-low yards per attempt of 7.3 through 6 weeks. The Broncos rank middle of the pack in both pace of play and pass rate over expectation, signaling a balanced and conservative attack that has scored only seven touchdowns over the first six weeks of the season. They now welcome a Jets defense that has been extremely solid of late, allowing only 15.7 points per game over the last three weeks. We should expect a similar approach to what we have seen from the Broncos so far this season, with balanced and conservative play-calling that is relatively inefficient. The Broncos' backfield is in disarray with Javante Williams on IR and Melvin Gordon being benched in week 6 and then declared the starter by Hackett on Tuesday. And the Jets' pass defense ranks 6th in PFF coverage grade and 5th in PFF pass rush grade, making it unlikely that this is the spot where Wilson and the passing game are able to get right. Likeliest Game Flow This game may be the least appealing on the slate from an optics standpoint. Unless, of course, you are a big fan of incompletions, short runs, and punts. In that case, this may be one of the games of the year for you. This game's over-under of 38 may be aggressive, given the current state of both teams, and both coaches are likely to become more than happy holding serve and playing conservatively deep into the game. These teams have played a combined 12 games this season, and there have only been two instances of both teams in a game scoring more than 20 points. The likeliest source of an offensive spark would be the Jets' running game, but the Broncos' defense is no slouch in that department either and will certainly be expecting a heavy dose of the run, which makes it unlikely that the Jets will sustain success in that area early in the game. The Texans at the Raiders kick off Sunday, October 23rd at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both teams enter Week 7, coming off a bye with only one win so far this season. Las Vegas will likely play this game without Darren Waller, and their offense has become very concentrated towards Josh Jacobs, with a likely renewed focus on getting Devontae Adams involved. Houston won their first game of the year before the bye, leaning heavily on their running game on the back of Damian Pierce. Houston's defense has performed well for most of this season, but has faced a very easy schedule of offenses. How Houston will try to win The Texans have been very competitive this season despite talent deficiencies across the board. They play a relatively conservative game and have learned to lean on rookie sensation Damian Pierce in their running game, giving him 24 opportunities, carries plus targets, per game over the last three weeks. Head coach Lovey Smith also stated this week that their intention is to continue leaning on Pierce in all but third and long situations when he leaves the field for Rex Burkhead. It is not a surprise that the Texans would lean heavily on their running game, as quarterback Davis Mills is decent as a game manager at times, but has not shown much growth in his second season. Mills ranks 25th in the NFL in QB rating and 30th in the league in yards per pass attempt. He has also thrown only five touchdown passes while turning the ball over five times, with another three fumbles his own team recovered. The Raiders' defense has been much worse against the pass than the run this year, but the overall context and approach of the Texans' team will dictate that they continue a conservative, run-heavy approach in this matchup. Houston has played at a relatively quick tempo this season, ranking 11th in situation-neutral pace of play, as a result of changing tempos at times to keep defenses off balance and occasionally steal a play from an unprepared defense. However, they are unlikely to become overly aggressive in this matchup or consistently play at a fast pace unless forced to do so. How Las Vegas will try to win. The Raiders enter Week 7 with only one win, However, three of those losses have been by a combined eight points, and the fourth loss was to the Cardinals in overtime, a game that the Raiders led by 20 at halftime. Relative to performance and talent, the Raiders have probably gotten less out of their season than any other team in the NFL. After a week to reset and get focused for the stretch run, The Raiders now have a home game that they are favored in and have a chance to make a statement to themselves and the league that they are not going to be the team that gives away games that we saw the first five weeks of the season. First things first, the Raiders have turned to Josh Jacobs as a feature back, and he has performed very well, with arguably his best two performances of his career coming in the two weeks preceding the bye week. The Raiders are around the league average in pass rate as well as situation-neutral pace of play, signaling a balanced attack on a weekly basis. They appear likely to be without tight end Darren Waller for this matchup, which should serve to affect the outlook of their passing game this week. The Texans' defense is a trademark of head coach Lovie Smith, with shell coverages preventing big plays and forcing teams to matriculate the ball down the field in the short and intermediate areas. While Devontae Adams connected on two long touchdowns against the Chiefs in Week 5, the Texans' defense is designed to discourage those types of plays from even being attempted. The Texans' defense ranks bottom five in the league in both yards per carry allowed and yards per passing tipped allowed. Coming out of the bye week, we should expect the Raiders to continue doing what has been working, writing Josh Jacobs, and also to use creative ways to get their best playmaker in the receiving game, Devontae Adams, more involved especially if Waller is ruled out. Adams has had more than five receptions in only two of five games so far. After giving him the second-largest contract ever for a wide receiver this offseason, I would expect his involvement to be a priority for the struggling team coming out of a bye. I would also expect to see an uptick in targets in the short areas of the field for Hunter Renfro against the conservative shell coverages of the Texans. Likeliest Game Flow This game is likely to move slowly throughout, with the Texans' offense determined to slam the ball into the strength of the Raiders' defense, and the Raiders' offense being forced to methodically move the ball downfield against the conservative coverages of the Texans. The Raiders should effectively move the ball throughout the game, but drives will take a lot of time, and the overall pace of this game will likely be determined by how successful the Raiders can be in the red zone, a place they have struggled, and the Texans' defense has been very good. The Raiders currently rank 25th in the league in red zone touchdown percentage, while the Texans' defense ranks 4th in the NFL in red zone touchdown percentage allowed, allowing opponents to score touchdowns on less than 40% of their drives in the red zone this season. Based on the matchups and two-day performance, the most likely outcome here is a modest scoring game that the Raiders control but never really separate in. Of course, that could all change if they were able to find some answers during their week off an outcome that would not be surprising given the Patriots' background of Raiders head coach Josh McDaniels and how successful the Patriots have been historically coming out of bye weeks. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Seahawks at the Chargers kick off Sunday, October 23rd at 425 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 50.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Chargers offense should have a relatively high floor in this one, with the game's outlook depending mostly on the success of the Seahawks offense. Both teams won relatively ugly games last week, but should have the ability to exploit advantageous matchups this week. The Chargers' run defense is one of the worst in the league, and the Seahawks will need to attack it to open up the passing game. The Chargers' passing game should be able to attack Seattle all over the field, and their up-tempo pace should give the Seahawks fits. How Seattle will try to win The Seahawks' passing game came back down to earth in Week 6 against the Cardinals, although that should have been at least somewhat expected as the Arizona defense has done a tremendous job against wide receivers this season. The Chargers' pass defense has been middle of the pack by most metrics this season, but has been very solid outside a few mistakes and has held up well despite losing star edge rusher Joey Bosa in Week 3. In Monday night's win over the Broncos, highly paid free agent addition cornerback J.C. Jackson had a huge blown coverage in the first half and was then benched for the remainder of the game. After having a very good first half passing the ball, Russell Wilson managed only three completions in the second half and overtime. Seattle has the talent at wide receiver to produce in any matchup, especially if they fall behind and are forced to become more aggressive. But this sets up as a matchup that would be difficult for them to be efficient consistently through the air. We could also see the Seahawks get their trio of tight ends involved early in this game as a means of conservatively moving the ball through the air. The Seahawks leaned heavily on Kenneth Walker in Week 6, treating him as a feature back and giving him 23 of the 25 running back touches. He performed admirably in that role, providing 110 yards from scrimmage and a touchdown against a solid Cardinals defense. Seattle now travels south to Los Angeles to face a Chargers team playing on a short week that ranks 31st in the NFL in yards per carried allowed and has given up 100-yard rushing games to running backs in three of their last four games, the hapless Cardinals with their third-string running back being the only exception. Seattle will undoubtedly try to establish Walker and get him into space against a Chargers defense that ranks 29th in the league in tackling grade by PFF. The Seahawks have to be aware of their defensive shortcomings against such a high-powered offense and will certainly be looking to keep this game in striking distance and not allow the Chargers to get rolling and build a big lead. Sustained drives which attack the Chargers' clear area of weakness are their path to doing just that. How Los Angeles will try to win. As with most teams, especially in the current state of the NFL, where offenses across the board are struggling, the Chargers have been relatively matchup-dependent through six weeks. They have faced defenses that are ranked in the top 10 in the NFL in defensive DVOA twice. In those two games, against the Broncos and Jaguars, the Chargers are averaging 14.5 points with only two total touchdowns. In their other four games, against teams ranked in the bottom 8th in the NFL in defensive DVOA, the Chargers are averaging 28 points per game and have scored at least three touchdowns in every game. The Seahawks rank 22nd in the NFL and have given up 27 or more points in all but two of their games through six weeks. I lay these things out here to help us understand the high floor the Chargers' offense should have in this matchup, especially with the likely return of Keenan Allen to help spread the attention of defenses and keep the chains moving so the Chargers sustain more drives. The Chargers have the fourth highest pass rate over expectation in the NFL and play at blazing speed with the fastest situation neutral tempo in the league. The Chargers' play calling and tempo are something that we can expect to stay constant in this matchup. They are now facing a Seahawks defense that has been torched repeatedly this season by teams not run by Nathaniel Hackett and Cliff Kingsbury, arguably the least creative and aggressive offensive-minded head coaches in the NFL. Seattle's defense has allowed 27 or more points to all four teams they have faced besides the Cardinals and the Broncos, who at this point, I think we can all agree, have struggles caused by their own issues rather than the result of anything the defense does to them. The Chargers averaged 28 points per game last season and have done the same this year against defenses ranked outside the top 10 in DVOA, which the Seahawks certainly qualify as with a lowly 22nd rank. While Seattle's defense looked the best it has all year against the Cardinals, that had a lot to do with Arizona's lack of creativity and some massive breakdowns in pass protection due to offensive line injuries and a quarterback who can't see over the people in front of him. The Chargers have a better line, quarterback, running game, and receiving weapons than what Arizona presented, and should not have anywhere near the type of systemic problems that the Cardinals had last week. The Seahawks' defense has traditionally been heavy in cover-three coverages and has been designed to heavily protect the perimeter and deep areas of the field, forcing throws underneath and to the middle of the field. In recent weeks, however, the Seahawks have shown a much greater tendency to play man coverage. After playing man coverage on less than 10% of their defensive snaps in the first three weeks, the Seahawks changed course and played man coverage on 40% of their snaps in Week 4 and 5. However, Weeks 5 and 6 were their worst defensive performances of the season. In Week 6, the Seahawks mixed things up a lot and surrendered the largest gains of the day to the Cardinals passing game when they were sitting in zone. Against the Chargers, I would expect the Seahawks to once again mix things up and perhaps blitz more, as they did against Arizona, in an attempt to mask coverage deficiencies by applying pressure. There is a bit of narrative about Seattle's scheme limiting perimeter receivers, but their lack of talent and communications issues this season make them far less imposing regardless of scheme, and we should also take into account the schedule they have faced so far this season. Judy, 4 for 102 and 1, Sutton, 4 and 72. 49ers run heavy, poor weather QB change, San Francisco dominated all game. Falcons run heavy, Drake London 3 for 54 and 1. Lions, Josh Reynolds 7 for 81 and 1, 2-point conversion and tackled at the one. Saints run heavy, Chris Olave 4 for 54 and 1 in 2.5 quarters. Cardinals, Marquise Brown 5 for 68. We can see that despite playing a schedule of poor or low-volume passing offenses, they are giving up plenty of solid games to perimeter wide receivers, and there isn't a specific area of the field we should be worried about them shutting down against the Chargers. Likeliest Game Flow As outlined above, the floor for the Chargers offense in this game is relatively high. Obviously, anything can happen in an NFL game, and the Seahawks' defense did look very good last week. But the history of the Chargers' offense and Seahawks' defense this season makes it extremely likely that the Chargers score 24 or more points in this game and are able to consistently move the ball. That being said, the Seahawks have not been giving up a ton of big plays throughout the air this season, even when they do give up production to opponents. And the Chargers' offense is a spread-the-wealth attack that really only has one downfield threat. This means that the Chargers' drives will likely be long-sustained drives while the Seahawks' drives will likely lean towards the run and short-area passing game, which will also likely be methodical. This game can certainly meet or exceed its slate-high over-under, but it will take some time to build up momentum before things would really get moving. It will be interesting to see how things play out, as the path to a high-scoring game may be hurt by the Chargers getting out to a big lead. This may sound counterintuitive, but a big Chargers lead will make the Seahawks' offense more predictable and make it harder for them to generate big plays. If the Seahawks are able to score some first-half points and keep things close while having success in the running game, it will likely open up some one-on-one opportunities for DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett down the field. The Chiefs at the 49ers kick off Sunday, October 23rd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson This is a matchup of strength on strength, as the 49ers lean heavily on their elite defense, while the Chiefs are driven by Patrick Mahomes and the highest-scoring offense in the NFL. A key to this game will be whether the 49ers' running game can create issues and move the ball against the Chiefs. Kansas City's offense is unlikely to fail, but may struggle to turn drives into touchdowns. San Francisco will want to avoid a situation where they are playing from behind and predictable like they faced last week. How Kansas City will try to win The Chiefs' offense is the highest scoring unit in the NFL, averaging 29.8 points per game through six weeks. They will have their hands full this week with a 49ers defense that is allowing only 14.8 points per game and has given up more than one offensive touchdown in only one game this season. That being said, the Chiefs offense is light years better than anything San Francisco has seen this year, and the 49ers just gave up 28 points to the Falcons in Week 6. The 49ers defense has also been battling injuries, with several starters limited or missing practice to start this week again. The Chiefs' offense operates exactly how you would expect a team with Patrick Mahomes to operate, with the second-highest pass rate over expectation in the league and the eighth-fastest situation-neutral pace of play. They lean heavily on their all-world QB, and he has shown that his greatness was not dependent on Tyreek Hill, making do with an average supporting cast outside of Travis Kelsey. Mahomes will have to play at a high level once again this week against a San Francisco coverage unit that PFF grades as number two in the NFL. In last week's game against the Bills, Juju Smith-Schuster had his best game of the season, and McCole Hardman scored a touchdown, while Marquez Valdez-Scantling had zero catches and dropped a touchdown while having another one called back by a holding penalty. This week against the 49ers, the Chiefs will face a team that plays zone coverage at a top-five rate in the NFL. It will be interesting to see if the 49ers change that approach this week, as the Chiefs have faced the highest rate of man coverage in the NFL this season. Given how good the 49ers' defense is, I would expect them to stick with what works for them, rather than altering their approach. This could actually help the Chiefs' receiving core, which has struggled to create separation at times this season and should be able to find some holes in the zones they face, assuming the offensive line is able to provide adequate time for Mahomes to make plays. How San Francisco will try to win The 49ers lean heavily on their running game, as they have in past seasons, and are running the ball on nearly half of their offensive plays. Last week, they fell behind early against the Falcons, and things got ugly for them, something they will surely be trying to avoid this week against the Chiefs' high-powered offense. Jimmy Garoppolo attempted a season-high 41 passes compared to only 16 rushes for the 49ers in Week 6. If the 49ers want to remain competitive in this game, it will almost certainly be through a concentrated and creative running game, with some short area passing designed to get their explosive receivers in space also playing a key role throughout the game. The Chiefs' defense has historically limited wide receiver production, but has given up some big games to receivers this season, including Devontae Adams, Stephon Diggs, Gabe Davis, Mike Evans, and Mike Williams. When looking at this 49ers team, we know they will want to run the ball and hide Jimmy Garoppolo a lot, but we should also expect some plays dialed up to give Brandon Ayuk, George Kittle, and Debo Samuel opportunities to make plays. I would also suspect that this could be a week where the 49ers use Debo Samuel more often out at the backfield, and give him 6-10 carries given last week's struggles of the running backs and the tough matchup the Chiefs present. Clearly, the 49ers are going to need to score points, and finding ways to get the ball in the hands of playmakers without exposing Jimmy Garoppolo to an opportunistic defense would be very wise for the 49ers, especially given the success they had using this approach last season. While Debo clearly does not want to be consistently used in that capacity, in specific situations against tough opponents, it would make sense for him to do whatever the team needs. This could also be a spot where George Kittle sees an increased target share over the middle of the field and is allowed to make plays after the catch. The Chiefs' defense ranks 23rd in PFF tackling grade, which could be problematic against the 49ers' offense, which is filled with players who excel with the ball in their hands. Likeliest Game Flow On paper, this game appears to have a tough path to a fruitful offensive environment due to a rock-solid 49ers defense and a conservative 49ers offense that wants to lean on the run. However, both offenses in this game are full of explosive potential due to the playmakers and creativity on the San Francisco side and the elite quarterback play of Patrick Mahomes on the Kansas City side. The Chiefs' offense has scored over 14 first-half points on only two occasions this season, which came against the Cardinals and Bucks. The difficulty of this matchup for the Chiefs' offense and the approach of the 49ers' offense makes it unlikely that either team will score in bunches during the first half of this game, meaning it likely stays within one score in either direction well into the third quarter. This should allow both teams to operate in the manner they want to while having flexibility in their play-calling relatively late in the game. The Chiefs have fallen behind by 10 or more points twice this season against the Chargers and Raiders, and were able to come from behind to win in both instances. If they do so in this game, they will likely have a much more difficult time bouncing back against an elite defense and foundational running game of the 49ers.